Welcome to the Gospel Journey Podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people into discipling relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by a Spirit. Today, we're in week two of Path 8, the book of Hebrews, and my name is Jamie Trussell, and I'm joined again by one of our elders and pastors, Steve Winstead. All right, Steve, good to be with you again as we keep walking through Hebrews. We'll be chapters 3 and 4 today, and uh, really hoping this continues to be a blessing uh, to people going through Gospel Journey groups here at Harvest. And just beginning with this first bit in chapter 3, if we draw back to last week, one of the main arguments was Jesus is superior to angels. The author then is, is moving now to Jesus being superior to Moses, and that's what he'll unpack largely in verses 1 through 6. But just to look at verse 1, I love the little phrase where he says this, consider Jesus. And that idea of considering, it is a, a intentional almost mathematical idea of carve out time to sit down and intentionally process who Jesus is and what he did. Uh, now, just confessionally, uh, that is not really true of me very often. I can read scripture, I can study, I can pray, but really just a, a carved out time to simply think upon who Christ is. Remember, he's already told us in this book, Jesus was God. He's already told us that Jesus completed the work God had for him. It just, but to sit down and evaluate it and consider all of its implications, I think would be a worthwhile devotional task. Yeah, and he's speaking to followers of Christ here to consider Jesus. So it's clearly not an unbeliever, although I think that is a great call to the unbelievers to say, consider Jesus, um, not in some pressurized, but if the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and mind, ponder, consider Jesus. And for the believer, we continually come back to that. Consider who Christ is. It's uh, something we have to come back to really regularly, daily, almost hour by hour to remind ourselves to push reset. Here's what I consider who Christ is, what that says about who I am, my value, my worth, my goals in life, what I'm living for. Considering Christ pushes reset on basically everything in your life. That's right. And once considering the person of Christ, he then moves that forward to say, now uh, put that up against Moses. Mm-hmm. Now to this Jewish audience, that's going to be a, a little bit of a shock moment because, and rightfully so, I mean, Moses is a huge figure in yeah. the Old Testament. He's a huge figure for Christians, not just people of a Jewish faith. Is This is God's chosen man who led uh, Israel out of slavery brought him uh, to the brink of coming into the promised land. He is the man God revealed the Old Testament law to on Mount Sinai. And yet, here the author is saying, as much as you revere Moses, uh, Jesus even much more so. And he does this uh, interesting analogy that we wouldn't do today because of our context. He talks about uh, kind of this idea of a house, and Moses in the house and Jesus in the house. And that whole argument uh, really boils down to this, saying, yes, Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Jesus owns God's house as a son. And so Jesus is obviously superior, the owner superior to the servant. Yeah, it's it's almost comical when you look and go comparing Christ to Moses because Christ's superiority is so far above that. Yet in the Jewish mind, you know, Moses is, is on the Mount Rushmore of Old Testament uh, people. You, you've got Abraham and Moses and David, those are the, the, the really the biggest three that the Jews continually pull back to. And Moses really more so than anyone else because the 
most significant event of the Old Testament, the most uh, talked about, the most repeated event of the Old Testament, is the Exodus. Mm. So they continually pull back to that for their identity. Also, the law is given by Moses. So their identity is so much found in the Exodus and how they live is found in the law. So Moses, you, you really don't get any more significant for their daily life and for what they live by and the values and all of that is wrapped up in Moses. So in their mind, you no one could be superior as a man really than Moses. That's He's, right. That's right. And that was really well put. And and it, even going further with this analogy of the house and, and Moses and Jesus, to, to stop and say, now, what exactly is the house that he's talking about? And I love the fact that he answers that question for us in verse 6. It says, we are his house if, right? So here's a condition. We hold fast our, conf- or hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, which is his way of saying, if we are found in Christ, then we are the house. So the house is the church. It is God's redeemed people. It, so what is it saying is that Moses was a servant of God's people, but Jesus is the origin and owner and head and ultimate authority over God's people. So how do you become found in this house in which Jesus owns? It's repentance and faith. Mm-hmm. It's repenting of our sins and turning and trusting in Christ for forgiveness and salvation. But Jesus builds his church. Jesus owns his church. Jesus rules over his church. And we are simply servants in the house that Christ is building. Yeah, and this even gets into the definition a little bit of what is the church, Mm. which is critical in our day and time that we know what is the church, because we never would talk about really false churches or, you know, it even seemed a little crazy to go to a place and say that's got church on the door, but it's not a church. Right. Biblically, the definition of a church is if you're holding fast to the confidence and boasting our hope, which is Jesus Christ. So when a church by title starts to boast in anything other than Christ, starts to point people to anything other than Christ as being sufficient enough, it's left that biblical definition of what is a church. So it may say it on the door, uh, God's favor uh, is, is not resting in that place, and that place is working sort of in spite of God. Yeah, and it, that is a beautiful picture. I think what Jesus even says to the seven churches in the book of Revelation is if you depart from the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, and you pursue anything else, you may even be tacking Jesus on the peripheral of it, but you pursue anything else, he says, I will remove my lampstand from among you, which is a picture of his presence. And so if a church is not preaching the gospel and elevating the head of the house who is Christ, then we have no reason to think that the presence of Christ actually rests or dwells there. Yeah, and that's one of the one of the trickier things, and I see it around the world, is what the so-called church in the United States export around the world sometimes is, is something that is not the truth of the gospel. And that spreads quickly, and it's a dangerous thing. And for us, we continue to hearken back to We've got to proclaim the truth of the gospel and allow that to do its work. It's not so much, uh, you know, we can declare that false, but it's more so we've really got to be pro the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of the gospel. And that's what he's he's hearkening to. And he's about to talk in, in verse 7, he'll start talking next about a warning about hardening your heart, mm. you know. And, and that's one of the great dangers of this book is that a person would harden their heart. And we've all probably 
no people in our lives who we'd say the gospel's been shared with them, and yet their hearts are hardened. That's right. And that's where the, the, the seed of the gospel takes root in the heart. So oftentimes we need to do soil work uh, and cultivate that soil. And it, that, that's some of the harder work there is. But he's speaking to a hardened heart is a big part of what he talks about really in 7, uh, about through 11, and on through the rest of the chapter 3. Yeah, and, and, and to keep going there, the antidote seemingly to a hardened heart. Look, look as, as a Christian, I can go through seasons of having a hard heart towards God. Uh, now, a non-Christian, biblically considered, we would have to say has a continual heart that's hardened towards God because they haven't been illuminated by the gospel. But let's just take the believer's, uh, just a believer's scenario. Uh, and a lot of things can harden hearts. Some doesn't work out the way it mm-hmm. wants to. A tragic death you know, God doesn't come through on our terms. There's legitimate reasons to be disappointed and grieved in life. Uh, and so there, there are reasons why our hearts can become hardened. But the antidote to that goes all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 3, consider Jesus. And I think that's why he begins there. He's about to warn us that don't harden your hearts. Well, what's the opposite of hardening your hearts? Consider Christ. Yeah. And those things work together as the antidote. Um, to one another uh, but again a- as a conversational point in our gospel journey groups uh, man let's just be honest about the fact that i get hard-hearted towards god i mean it, and it doesn't take much for me right so so you know i have three kids a beautiful wonderful wife but there's some days where i just honestly my prayers even like with little kids it's like can we not just get a day where everything works Right, if my four-year-old's doing awesome, why does my two-and-a-half-year-old have to be having a meltdown and my four-and-a-half-month-old be really fussy for an entire day? And it just, I'm just on edge, and I get short with my wife. It's just like, Lord. Uh, and I can get frustrated. Why can't she sleep through the night yet? Why? Do, and these are so small. It just shows it doesn't take much for me to get frustrated and going, God, you're all-powerful. You could make her sleep through the night every night the rest of her life. Well, and that's the reality of what so many people are living in, in some way, shape, or form, be it from their work situation to their family situation to their extended family situation. There are always these things that we're in life that we're trying to, I don't know, fix is the right word, but they just need some attention. They need, we, we want them to be different than they are. Easier. We don't be it, easier. Yeah, we, we want to be easier. And in 13 and, and, or 12 and 13 he sort of begins to deal with a little bit of this unbelieving heart and he's telling he tells believers to to watch out for those that have an unbelieving heart that could lead them astray and i think that that's a a caution for us is we people are we're so influenced both by unbelievers or maybe even believers whose faith is is not strong or they suddenly place their faith in other things, and that begins to influence us. Or even by the the voices in the media, the voices in uh, uh, Netflix, TV, all the things that we watch. Those voices of the unbelieving world are so powerful, and probably more powerful in our day than any other, because they just infiltrate every single area of our life. That uh, in thirteen, it gives us the antidote to that a little bit, which is to encourage. It talks about encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, and. To me, that's one of the the encouragers in my life, one of the greatest gifts that I right. have. And I've never really considered myself to be one of those people that just naturally has that gift. But those folks that 
are high-level encouragers I'm drawn to because everything else beats us down and we need encouragement continually over and over and over again. So I think as, as followers of Christ, oftentimes we're looking for these high and lofty things that we're going to go do for the kingdom. <laughs> One mm. of the basics is, man, be an encourager, encourage others, continually encourage brothers and sisters. That's why the church gathers. That's on right. Sunday, a big part of it is we want to encourage one another in who we are in the gospel and love each other well. Yeah, and, and uh, right, so to go back to kind of my silly, like, mundane example of, of if kids are all going crazy, that, uh, like, it's really easy for me to clearly see uh, this big, giant act of immorality and what it would cost me. Yeah, I can know... What's harder for me to recognize is the little ways I become frustrated and disappointed and how over time the little frustrations and disappointments add up and get me to a place of hard-heartedness that I didn't even see coming. And that's where I love that it talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Part of something that's deceptive, it's not easily recognized. And that's why I don't get dismissive of... Look, if I can get irritated and angry and treat my wife disrespectfully because I'm frustrated with a kid not sleeping, if I trivialize that, that can compound and get me to a really dangerous place. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Now, yes, of course, if we're sitting here and, and like somebody comes in and says, here's a gun, here's a bank, I know you can rob it, make a million dollars, we'd all go, oh, okay, not doing that. That's mm-hmm. really obvious. Mm-hmm. That's not deceitful. That's just right up in my face. And what I've seen, especially as so I'm 35 uh, and you're just, you know, five, six years ahead of me, Steve. But if I just take a generation 10 years younger than me, 15 years uh, uh, younger than you, I'm amazed at how what I used to assume as being a normative biblical thought is questioned and challenged, especially along areas of, of sexuality or authority. Just things that that even in my generation were assumed to be true are professing followers of Jesus are are bucking up against. And it's like you mentioned, the media, friendships, peers, whatever. It is a slow drip over time that the deceitfulness of sin gets us to a place we never wanted to be. Yeah, it's it happens easy. Uh, it happens without us often knowing it. That's why I even go back to earlier in chapter two. It's 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 a drift and it's the deceitfulness of sin. And the key on deceitfulness is you don't know that that has happened. That's the very definition of it. So sin has by nature deceitfulness that we don't realize what has gone on. And there's going to be people in your groups that this is what they're, they're living in. And they aren't right. aware of the deceitfulness. And what happens when we've been deceived and we're, we're follower of Christ and our hearts are getting a little hearted, hard-hearted, it can take us to being in a small group and instead of being open and honest um, we perform and hide real easily that's right so having people that you trust enough and that know that sin is real and that we're all still battling it with in some way shape or form and we always will be uh, we hope that we're experiencing victories more and more but be able to have that in your group an, an openness that's where the deceitfulness of sin that's right comes to light because it's usually a person doesn't see it and typically when a person is deceived 
they can be defensive of the fact that they are deceived. And those are harder conversations to have. Look, and you're speaking to some personal situations I've been going through with a close friend for a while now. And that is, and I'll never forget this conversation. And it's a very dear friend who has departed from, I think, a very central biblical truth. And it's strained our friendship. And the reality is I have taken an approach say, I think you're being deceived and under spiritual attack. And one of his quotes to me in the midst of that is, well, if I'm being spiritually attacked, why have I never felt more joy in the Lord? And I sat back for a second and I said, well, because I think Satan always appears as an angel of light. Mm-hmm. It, 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 <laughs> I don't know anyone that's ever knowingly and willfully said, I'm ready to be deceived. Let's go this direction. It looks good, it feels good, it sounds good, it's a more palatable alternative than maybe what the Bible teaches, and we can bend and twist and get ourselves there. And once we're there, we don't want to be told we're wrong. And look, part of what you said earlier was a great point about encouragement, but part of that encouragement is, hey, Steve, I love you and you're in sin. Yeah. And I think you're deceit. That doesn't feel encouraging, but that is encouraging. And that is the role of a Christian in another Christian's life is to point out sin in love because the best place for you to be is inside the will of God, not in deceived, hard-hearted, uh, continual sin patterns. And i tell you one of the places it's hardest is when you get a, a guy and a girl who are living together before marriage that are professing Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because they are convinced that we're getting married anyway. Let's trial run it. Let's, you know, it's it's easier to have one mortgage payment than two. It's easy. All of these deceitful reasons they'll give you and and that to them will feel like an attack. And here you have on one hand, we're encouraging towards biblical truth, but at the same time, talking to someone who professes the Lord and is fully convinced that what they're doing is right. Yeah, and one, one of the things is words change over time. So there's a biblical way that certain words are understood, and they begin to uh, change in shape. Um, you take the word cool, hundred years ago, it just meant temperature. Mm. It means when I say that word first, it means something very different today. So you take the word encourage, you take the word love. Um, love is, is uh, a, a word that means you never tell me anything I really don't want to hear. But That's raising right. my children, I love my children. And when I see them heading in a wrong direction, I'm going to love them enough to jump in and respond. That's right. Uh, you take an extreme example. If my youngest starts to walk in the street and a car is coming. I love him so much that I would yank him out, potentially hurting his arm. You know, that's love um, has some of that in it. And same with encouragement. We think encouragement is always positive, positive, positive. But what, what are you encouraging a person toward? You're encouraging them toward Christ. That's that right. he's enough. Christ-likeness. He's that's sufficient. Right. You don't need, all the things of the world are not going to fulfill your deepest longings. It's Christ. That's right. Um Okay, now we've got some massive points in chapter four that we need to hit on, Steve, before we wrap up week two. So so I'm going to put them out there in, in 30,000 foot view and then let's walk through them because one of the big themes we even see it in chapter three, but he goes into it in four is the idea of biblical rest, which is a, a, a really a Genesis to Revelation idea in scripture. Uh, then he's going to unpack some description of, of, of the word. And, and then this whole idea, chapter 4, verse 15, of Jesus being our sympathetic high priest, which is one of the most, I think, comforting uh, passages in the entire book of Hebrews. 
but just to go to this idea of rest, I grew up thinking that when we talk about rest, that literally was interpreted, don't work on Sunday. Right? Sabbath rest means don't work on Sunday. And I remember even as a kid being like, okay, well, then why do people go out to eat? Because that requires other people to work on a Sunday. So either it's right or it's wrong. That, so that never made sense to me, that that's the only way. That, but I think that's a lot of the way people were raised in the church. I've, I've always viewed, uh, I, didn't, I didn't go to church until I was a little bit older. So rest to me, the idea was always just a nap. <laughs> so, I still is, like that form of rest. This is God's command for a Sunday nap. Yeah. Yeah, which my kids certainly don't understand to be a command at this point. Um, but w- the more I've looked into it, uh, this has become one of my favorite themes in all of Scripture. Because the rest that the author in Hebrews here is talking about is the biblical idea of an ultimate rest. It is a rest in Christ. It is a fact that God has ordained and called us into a place where we can drop our hands and trust in work that was finished on our behalf and a future day coming when there will be complete rest from sin, struggle, disease, evil. And so when it tells us in in the Old Testament that uh, or, or the author in Hebrews via the Old Testament story that Joshua bringing him into the promised land did not give them rest. He's talking about it didn't give them the ultimate rest. Now they had some rest from their enemies, but they were always striving, always toiling. They were still under the law. They were still having to obey uh, uh, and, and and realize that they would always fall short. Uh, uh, their work was always incomplete. And then the greater Joshua, Jesus, says, "Come to me, all who are weary and heaven laden, and I will give you rest." Now, what is he talking about? Well, compared to what the Pharisees were teaching the people. There was no rest in that. Earn your way to God. Keep all the commandments. You'll never be good enough. You'll never. So this rest is come to Christ. Quit trying to earn it. Uh, quit laboring, thinking that the more you labor, the more God will love you. It is a come to Christ and rest in his finished work on our behalf. Yeah, and I think where we get a misunderstanding of rest, we think rest has a lot to do with external. And I think Christ, even in that picture with the storm and Christ sleeping in the midst of it, there's going to be, in our lives, there's going to be chaos going on. We can't control when the storms come. We can't control how they come. But who we are, where our security is, where our hope is, uh, where we find our peace and comfort is in Christ. So in the midst of uh, tragedy, and again, this is much easier said than done, midst of tragedy, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of strife, in the midst of failure, in the midst of uh, dreams that don't come true, uh, in the midst of, hey, I hope my life would be like this and it's not like this, we can still have rest because we know it's in Christ and we're secure in Him and that's where our hope is. So we have to keep coming back to that. And most people live, I think, with sort of this steady unrest in their life. That's right. Not really ever having a contentment, always waiting, life will really begin, life will really start, I'll really be able to be satisfied and fulfilled when I reach this place. And we've all experienced it. I mean, anybody in your group has, you've gotten somewhere that you thought you wanted to be, and when you get there, there's no rest. That's right. It doesn't deliver. And that's where we have to continually come back to Christ. That's the only place we're going to find that rest. Yeah, and really, if you think about that, Ray, it's almost a sense of, of peace. It just mm-hmm. living in this active reality that I am at peace with God. 
in in a continual way that cannot be interrupted because God's works finished and perfect. And yet he says in verse 11, uh, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That's back to when he told us earlier not to drift, Mm -hmm. like strive to like, let's, let's be focused on it, be intentional towards the ultimate rest. We're going to render to He says so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now the disobedience is referencing the people that took the land through Mm -hmm. Joshua. Uh, they were all gung-ho at first, crossed the Jordan River, and at the mm-hmm. end of the day, they got comfortable stopping where they were at and not continually in obedience so that they could have rest in the land. They let their enemies remain. And I just wonder, by way of analogy, how many of us still have our compartmentalized pet sins that we let remain and yet still somehow think we're going to live at rest and peace with God in an intimate daily way? And part of it is we we know there are sins that are unacceptable. And then we know that there are sins that are somewhat acceptable, easy to hide, and we, we, we aren't made as big a deal of. And those are the ones that are more difficult to deal with in our life mm-hmm. because often we're not being encouraged toward dealing with them. Mm, yeah, which going back to what he said earlier, and what is verse twelve? I think he's saying, you know, you know, the most powerful weapon in in slicing us and and seeing causing us to see our sin and others to see their sin is the word of God. Mm-hmm. It says it's living and active, sharper, piercing division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning. Watch this thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want to see your sin, you really want to see it and you really want to, in love, show it to someone else, uh, saturate yourself in God's Word. Yeah, there's there's nothing like being in the Word. And, and being in the Word and allowing yourself to be um, open to what God is speaking to you through it, coming at it with a, hey, this, this is going to hurt at times. There's going to be times that God has to work on me. But when we understand that, man, it's that's for both God's glory, that He can now... He, who he is can shine more fully through me. So that's for his glory. And it's for my good to, to live more like Christ is the best way, most satisfying way we can live. And that's why one of the biggest things for anybody in your group is what do you make of the word of God? Do you really mm. believe the word is true? And if you do, how does your life begin to declare that? Is, that's right. is, is it something you really trust in that you're, you're returning? You really think I need God's word in order to to not drift in order to walk out my faith yeah and it's it's interesting because you could go to go to Paul in Ephesians 6 and and the word of of God is a sword and it's a and we can think think of it as yeah this is our offensive weapon against you know tidal waves of spiritual attack or cultural attack or He's talking about inside the church. Mm-hmm. That's what he's talking about here is the sword. He's not talking about piercing enemies. He's not talking about defending the faith. He's talking about letting the word of God go deep into you and cut you to make sure you are always dealing with your sin, to make sure that as I'm encouraging you, Steve, to walk with Christ, that I'm letting the word of God cut you in your sin and letting that work inside the church. It's not just a, a weapon to wield against who we would deem to be our enemies. When it, it says at the end of 12, discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart, which those are the easiest to hide at times. Yeah. Um, the hardest for somebody else to either recognize or even, you know, begin to speak to. Really, those are things that come with us and the Lord and the Lord 
discerning and dealing with our thoughts and intentions of our heart. Uh, because we can do things that even appear God honoring, yet the intentions of our heart that's right. Boil back to ourself and our own recognition of wanting something out of that for some reason. That's right. And we can hide that, like you said, to a degree from other people. Verse 13 assures us we cannot hide it from God. Yes. And the best thing for us to do would be bring it to the light with one another because it's already in the light to God mm-hmm. himself. Um, okay, Steve, last point before we close this down. Jesus Christ, chapter 4, verse 15, being our high priest. Uh, he's our high priest. And he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he was human and he was tempted in every respect and yet without sin. This is a huge statement on the person of Christ. Uh, This is a huge uh, passage and it's one that I wrestle with because I'm thinking Jesus hasn't been tempted in every way just like I am. You know, I mean, uh, he was obviously never tempted with road rage, never tempted to look at anything (laughs) inappropriate on the Internet. I mean, uh, what does this mean? Right. And it really boils down to the heart intention of every sin. You know, if you go to First uh, John 2.16, it talks about the pride of life and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Those three areas of sin that we see Eve fell uh, to Adam and Eve fell. And Genesis chapter 3, they're all three there that Christ defeated in the temptation. Uh, Matthew, think of Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, where we see him tempted. He was tempted in all those ways. So the heartbeat of every temptation that we ever deal with, Christ experienced those as he was being tempted by Satan. And the temptation of those was at a far greater intensity level than any temptation we'll experience. That's exactly right. And that's so uh, wonderful that 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 is true of him. Because what's the role of a high priest? Well, it's to represent the people to God and God to the people. How do you do that perfectly? By having God and man exist in the same being without confusion or separation. So Jesus uh, was God and man, could represent man to God and God to man. And yet, because he was truly human, we actually in our prayers can say with great accuracy, Jesus, you know exactly what it's like to be me. Mm-hmm. Which makes this transcendent being of the universe so eminently close in our prayer life that it's really a comforting Mm -hmm. because we can say, Jesus, you know exactly what it's like to struggle with this or feel the weakness of this. Uh, And so God, while being other than us, because he is eternal, uh, he's all powerful. He's all knowing all the things that we're not uh, yet in his nearness to us, because Christ coming to earth as a man, we legitimately say, go the God of the universe knows exactly what it's like to be me. Yeah, and this idea of the high priest is massive. We probably, um, because we don't speak of uh, a high priest, we don't have uh, in our churches, quote, priest. Is, it's not what we, we, we experience, but the idea of a high priest in the Jewish mind was a massive thing, and there was, they're going to unpack later on throughout this book, how can Christ be the priest? Uh, he's prophet, priest, king. How does he fulfill that role, priest? And that's going to play out later in one of the most um, difficult uh, concepts, which is uh, the idea of Melchizedek, which comes out in chapter 7. But Christ being our high priest and and him sitting down at the right hand of God Almighty, uh, interceding on our behalf. That's right. We're secure in that. We can rest that's in right. that. That's where we find our rest. That's where we find our hope, and we keep coming back to that. 
and in the midst of our most shameful moment or darkest sin, even in the midst of that, verse 16 is true, I can with confidence, even though I should have no ability to be confident before God, because of Christ, there's a throne of grace that I can approach in confidence, knowing that he's not going to shame me or condemn me in my sin because Christ took that wrath and condemnation on himself uh, on my behalf. Um, Steve, thanks for your time. Yep. Uh, it's great being here with you. Uh, we look forward to next week as we pick up uh, week three of Hebrews chapters 5 and 6 on the Gospel Journey podcast. Thank you.